Inside Broadcast, the best Vox casting, either side of the breach. What a special day it is today, citizens! Not only do you get a brand new Tales of Malifaux with two stories, with the announcer, but it is also my favourite public holiday of the year. That's right, today it's Mole Whacking Day, the day where we take to the mines with a heavy wooden mallet and all the correct protective clothing to clobber things unconscious. From the old to the young, the rich to the poor, everyone really mucks in on Mole Whacking Day. It really does bring us all together and closer as a community. Do stay tuned throughout the day through all of our programming on this station for Mole Whacking Day coverage and safety tips. On with the non-mole-centric activities, our first story, smoke and mirrors, mirrors, mirrors. Smoke and Mirrors Named in the manner of the Empire's most legendary theatres, the star was every bit as majestic as the rose or the globe. Vaulted rafters ran high overhead, and its namesake chandelier hung in a sparkling display, bathing the room in rich yellow light. Crimson curtains hung along the walls, the rich velvet adding to the grandeur and allure. Intricately carved columns invoked the rapture of the heavens, with dancing cherubim in murals along the walls. Regular patrons also came to notice infrequent demonic figures hidden amongst the otherwise beautiful angels. Their grotesque images sparked conversation as the audience waited for a show to begin. Finding glimpses of the demons became a game, as they would appear in seemingly different locations throughout the expansive theatre, depending on the night. It added to the charm of the show as the shifting demons became part of the overall illusion and thrilling magic they'd witnessed throughout the evening. Some people never saw any of the elusive demonic figures, but certainly saw the real angels of the star, Miss Colette Dubois and her beautiful showgirls. Though the star was decorated with class and elegance, its bawdy shows catered to the miners returning from shifts in the foothills, and settlers who'd yet to forge their way into the wilds outside of the city. The star enjoyed a close association with the miners and steamfitters' union. Its skilled labor produced the enormous pipe organ that nightly accompanied the magic shows and lewd song and dance numbers that the theater was known for. As the audience took their seats, a great blast of whistling steam erupted from boilers installed backstage. They never saw the operators of the steam mechanism, but knew from experience what came next and quickly quieted. The traditional gaslights throughout the theatre were snuffed as great exposed gears just above the main curtain began to turn slowly. One massive brass gear was the centre of attention, as it spanned more than seven feet in diameter, and had hundreds of needle-like teeth that spun a series of progressively smaller gears at ever-increasing speeds. As the steam pressure mounted, increasing their overall speed and torque, glass bulbs slowly illuminated the stage. The bright electric lights received appreciative gasps of awe and murmurs of appreciation, regardless of how seasoned the showgoer was. One miner, relatively new to Malifaux and at the star for the first time, leaned over to whisper to his colleague, I swear that's worth the price of admission right there. The veteran said, Son, that curtain's about to open. 
and you'll get far more in your money's worth, I guarantee. He winked at another, who nodded in sincere agreement. As if on cue, the organ struck up a rising crescendo, and another set of visible iron gears to the upper left of the stage turned, pulling the curtains aside to reveal a line of ten beautiful women, each posed with one leg up and foot resting upon the other knee, exposing their leg far up the thigh as their pleated skirts fell aside. The men whistled with appreciation. The newcomer, Louis, thought he might cry his emotions ran so high, and he said, Where the hell have I been? I've been up and down the streets, and I never seen anything as lovely. His friend clapped him hard on the back. Boy, them's just the warm-up. You better go out and douse yourself with water, though, if you're going to get through this whole show. He guffawed boisterously, remembering well his first time at the star, and clapped the young miner on the back once more for good measure. The notes of the organ came at a blistering pace, and the dancing girls kicked and spun in well-practiced unison, smiling the entire time as if their frantic kicking and leaping exerted no energy at all, though many of the men in the audience were themselves quickly breathless. As they performed, changing from one beautiful dress to another in a matter of seconds between acts, the patrons consumed more and more alcohol in equal pace. Eventually, the legendary Cassandra joined the performance and the men quieted as the lights around the stage illuminated her flaxen hair like a halo about her pale face. The awed silence broke as she performed with the regular dancers, and everyone knew they were in the midst of one of the most incredibly beautiful and graceful women to ever live. Although billed as the magician's apprentice, no one in that audience thought it anything less than tongue-in-cheek. The other performers might as well have taken a break as all eyes in the establishment were fixed to her every move. She manipulated their emotions with a slight twitch or gesture, compelling them at once to quiet and watch a slow dance that conveyed an entire story of separation and loss of a man she once loved, and then, in the next moment, her body told a rather bawdy tale met with men dancing in aisles and the stomping of booted feet throughout the hall. As the song and dance ended, she stepped to the edge of the stage, laughing as she said, Seems we're all having fun tonight, to the crowd. They exploded in agreement. But I'm sure there are a few here for the first time, am I right? Miners, settlers, and guild guardsmen all whooped and hollered and pointed out their compatriots enjoying the show for their first and most memorable show. Those newcomers were not privy to what was to come for them, as the others kept it as some unspoken secret between them. And they simply could not wait to get those new men out of their seats. Cassandra said, Well, if this is your first time at the Star, we need you up here to meet the girls, right? Louis and the other new men needed very little prompting then to head to the stage. Others shouted, Go easy on the lads, Cassie! And, They have to work tomorrow, you know. Turned out, meeting the girls meant performing with them. As the last men stepped upon the stage, the organ belted out another quick step, and the girls drew the men into the line and had them kicking as high as they could, much to the great satisfaction of the others, who laughed and laughed at their ridiculous attempts to keep up. Girls unbuttoned the men's shirts mocking them, and the audience cheered even louder. As the song reached its climax, the men on stage were exhausted and dizzy, and on the last high note, the women stepped back and their last kick found the rear of a man, sending him flying off stage. The next day, each newcomer to the theatre would find himself hung over and bruised throughout his body. He'd complain of the aches and pains, and wished he could just sleep the whole day off. Each of them, though, would remember the night as one of the greatest of his life. As the show continued, Cassandra had the stage to herself, where her act involved an exotic saber and several death-defying swordplay tricks. 
The crowd favorite consisted of another showgirl in a box, with Cassandra seeming to cut her into pieces, only to have the girl jump out unscathed. Remarkably, Cassandra, too, was merely a warm-up magician's act. For when Colette Dubois later performed her illusions, men stared in astonishment and wonder. She awed them with acts of teleportations and remarkable pyrotechnics. As a finale, Cassandra, now just an assistant on stage, surprised the audience by pulling a Derringer pistol from her garter and fired it upon the surprised magician, Colette. The bullet struck her in the bare flesh just above the frilled top of her corset. They all saw the bullet wound and the quickly flowing blood. But, just as her body fell backward, she exploded in a booming cloud, and each man in the audience jumped. At the back of the theater, Colette stood upon the bar. Legs and arms stretched wide as she bellowed, Why so glum, fellas? There was no mark upon her perfect chest. They cheered and cheered. In the early morning, the theater was empty, but Miss Dubois and her girls were not idle. Colette toiled in the dim light backstage. She'd long since abandoned the silk lace and feathers of her costume, and was instead dressed in soft leather boots, denim pants, and a man's work shirt. She loaded several large sacks into a sturdy iron cart, and pushed it into the pipe organ's alcove. There Cassandra awaited her. "'I'm so jealous that you're heading Earthside,' remarked Cassandra, as she sat at the organ and adjusted a few of its valves. "'It's only for a few days. I won't even make it all the way east.' Colette said as she wheeled the cart next to the other woman. The others have already gone down, Colette, she said. They're waiting for you to depart. Take us down, then. Cassandra touched several chords on the organ's keyboards, but the keystrokes produced no sound save the brief expulsion of steam from a hidden mechanism and the slow grind of gears beneath the platform. Latching bolts were released, and a series of pneumatic pistons operated, lowering the organ's entire platform into the floor. A large velvet curtain drew closed around the organ's alcove from the automated gears that worked in concert with the descending mechanism. The two women chatted casually as they slowly descended. It took several minutes, but soon the secret elevator emerged from its vertical shaft to set down in a large vault. Although the installed water pipes and great iron and brass gears fulfilled an elaborate mechanical function, the great steam boilers and heavy mechanisms turning on the walls created a majestic image. It was a shame that so few had the opportunity to witness this clandestine place, the hub of the Arcanist black market. It was no accident that the Star had such a close relationship with the Miners and Steamfitters Union. Where the Union was the legitimate face of the Arcanist organization, the Star served as its marketplace as well as the center for all of its organized smuggling operations. In the theater above, countless illicit deals were made in the exchange of Soulstone. Colette's honeyed voice served her just as well in shrewd negotiations as it did on stage. After a deal was struck, this vault executed the transport of goods. It connected to the vast Malifaux sewer system, and just a few miles away, an agent awaited them at Malifaux Station, ready to smuggle the goods onto a train bound for the breach. The vault was already busy with a half-dozen of Colette's girls checking inventory. Soulstones weren't the only goods controlled by the Guild. This underground trade route handled weapons, magical artifacts, curios salvaged from the city itself, and even fine liquors hoping to bypass the severe guild import taxes on luxury goods. One of the women approached to relieve Colette of her cart, and rolled it in line with two others. It was a routine trip, one made hundreds of times, but today Colette was departing to finalize a transaction earthside with an important client Dr. Ramos would trust to no other. Take care of my theater, Cassandra. You know I will, Colette. The two hugged, and Cassandra wished she could take the other's place. 
not because she was truly jealous as she said but because she knew the covert mission was fraught with innumerable dangers and colette dubois was as important to the freedoms the arcanists fought for as the master magician was to her the group departed on colette's order soon leaving the stately decor of the star's subterranean vault and entered the dark dank passages of malifaux's labyrinth in sewers it was impossible for the guild to police these sewers which made them ideal for smuggling it took arcanists months to decipher the winding maze of just a few routes they could use and even then smuggling teams would get lost in the confusion of its endless passages it stood to reason that the sewers might mirror the layout of the streets above making it quite simple to detect and intercept people using the tunnels but this was a false assumption the arcanist drilled for several days beneath the star to reach what would eventually become the hub of its black market operations the chief engineer of the project reported that several other channels lay above their central vault but none knew for certain how many guild attempts to uncover the passages used by the arcanists had so far proven fruitless though their destination was only a few miles away as the crow flies the ancient sewer provided a difficult terrain to traverse many of its passages were broken and in several places the women were forced to ford its putrid water holding handkerchiefs over mouth and nose to ward against the gagging stench the arcanists were reluctant to evoke any repairs on the passages though they had the labour to do it for fear that such activities might reveal their most valuable trading route still in those areas that were the worst planks of wood were stowed so they might be used to bridge the channel's flow as the group paused to cross one such flow a rat toppled from overhead and landed in one of the carts it didn't startle the woman pushing the cart though she stopped and reached out to swat the pest away as she reached toward the rodent the creature hissed turning its red eyes up at her before she could call to the others a swarm of the vermin poured over her falling from a small crack above her head as if from an open water main the pouring stream of large rats toppled both her and her cart into the sewer's dark depths the flow here was quick and the cart laden with books spilled out to be taken up by the slimy flow and swept away valuable singular tomes that were lost forever the woman herself was also swept away her companions raced alongside the channel the screaming woman reaching out for them when they finally hauled her out they were five hundred yards or more from where she fell in colette knelt beside the girl the light of her gas lamp illuminating her frightened face you all right she asked concern clear upon her face the little bastard bit me the girl raised her arm into colette's light no blood flowed from the small wound though a sickly black ichor bubbled at the slight piercing of her skin her hand and arm were black as coal as if the limb had been crushed and bruised all over oh god miss dubois the girl shook and gasped and colette quickly covered her exposed arm y'all be all right margaret hold on let's get you back to the star to reassure the girl she said damn life makes it difficult to see the small bruise just right but she was not assured herself colette's words were cut off by the girl's sudden and violent spasm she collapsed forward onto her hands and knees and wretched that same black ichor poured from the girl's mouth and nose the girl's companions watched in horror backing away uncomfortably the girl spasmed again and toppled over onto her back gazing up at colette helplessly and clutching at her stomach the cloth of her shirt was stained black and the girl feebly clutched at her waist and stomach colette tore the shirt open and margaret's belly had sunken into a black pit her organs and flesh liquefied into black bile colette leapt from the girl her eyes scanning the corridors of the sewer as far as the lamplight revealed run she yelled colette's cry shook her girls out of their frozen horror 
With their torches held before them, they ran as fast as they could, skidding around corners and leaping the channel's water in a single jump. As they approached the corner where the cart had been spilled, they saw the water had filled with a swarm of writhing rats. The putrid flow of the sewer had been consumed by a writhing stream of crawling vermin as maggots and roaches crawled endlessly over one another in an undulating mass. Although all her girls excelled as dancers and acrobats, none were as deft as Colette, nor as brave. She bounded toward the heart of the grotesque mass, and she snatched a sack from amidst the diseased pile of rodents, shaking it in a snap to clear it of the horrible vermin, and she was back with the girls in a blink. Let's go, she urged. She led the way, and she spared no time for caution. But as she rounded a corner and looked back over her shoulder, she saw that one of the girls had fallen behind. The tide of rats licked at her feet, and there was a look of abject horror on her face. Colette, the girl cried as her panic mounted, tearing open the bag she had salvaged. She was relieved to see that her gamble had paid off, and a small cache of precious soul stones was contained within. Colette was no mere parlor magician, as everyone was led to believe. She hoisted one out and lifted it above her head. A flare of magical energy burst from her hand in a glint of light, as if reflected from a turning mirror. Like a trick in her stage show, Colette traded places with the girl, appearing in a puff of smoke where that girl had been. Looking back as the frightened girl spilled out onto the wet stonework, Colette called out again, Run! in a commanding voice that echoed within the twisting corridors of the sewer. With her crew fleeing behind her, Colette faced down the tide of approaching vermin. Holding her gem out in front of her, she crushed it in her hand, the soul stone exploding with a violent eruption of flame. The fire filled the whole of the channel and washed down the passage to consume the swarm coming at her, and they hissed and popped as the fire destroyed them. In a flash, the swarm was gone, but deep in the darkness she could hear the skittering sounds of more. Looking to repeat her trick, to buy her girls more time to escape the sewer, she reached into the bag again. The stone she found was smooth and pear-shaped, not the faceted angularity of a typical soul stone. Drawing it out, she saw that it had the appearance of amber, and deep in the heart of the stone was an insect, perhaps a spider. Despite the oddity of the stone, she felt the familiar power of magic within it. She could hear the sound of the swarm trampling overhead, and a sudden column of the creatures poured before her. She squeezed the stone attempting to crush it and use the power within, but it would not give. Regardless, the precious energy of Soulstone fueled her. That power to contort fate flooded her body, and her ring of fire came again, to burn the swarming vermin as the flames filled the corridor. The stone in her hand was unquenchable. Its power seemed as a well without end, a fountain of limitless strength like she had never experienced before. She tapped that power and let it fill her allowed her desperate flame to consume the plague before her. While that power might have been limitless, her body proved insufficient to sustain it. The fire died as her body fell exhausted to the ground. On her hands and knees she lifted her head weakly, gathering her strength as she gazed down the dark corridor. From those shadows a sinister laugh echoed and grew. Feel fortunate, a man said in a strangely guttural voice. You will be among the first to fall to this plague. A plague this world and all worlds will not soon forget. The voice was amplified by the wide diameter of the sewer channel, bouncing from the walls, slick with water. While weak, Colette was not without her biting sense of humour. It's typical that the villain will gloat while the heroine escapes. There will be no escape for you, the stranger said in that unnatural voice, filled at once with grating highs and rumbling lows. Really? 
Colette asked, a smile tugging at the corner of her lips and her voice growing strong. There's nothing here but smoke and mirrors. The chamber magnified a bestial roar from that man in the darkness, and the tide of rats and roiling insects swelled, rushing to consume Colette Dubois, still too weak to even rise. The flood of rats crashed against a pane of glass standing in the middle of the corridor, and the mirror fractured. The image of Colette in the mirror vanished in a wink. As hundreds of shards of glass chimed on the stones below, the whole passage plunged into darkness. I mentioned earlier. A partaker in a good whacking should always bring the correct equipment. Protective clothing such as working boots, gloves and tough trousers are ideal. You don't want to leave any flesh showing, that'll just encourage the beasts. Gloves should go up to your elbow. Safety guidelines advise that the wearing of steel cap boots to protect your toes from gnarly mole teeth. Bring the family! Mole whacking day is a public holiday that everyone can enjoy. Don't let the little ones run off by themselves. Hold their hands whilst they take their first critter. If they are not confident in taking a swing, then take them to the training range where they can use soft mallets to hammer away on dummies till their heart's content. If the ground beneath your feet starts shaking, don't run or panic. Remain perfectly still. The creatures can sense movement and your fear. If approached by an unwhacked mole, slowly back away and above all else, avoid the teeth and claws. Both are as long as a carving knife, and equally as sharp. Keep a bright light source nearby. That tends to scare them off. So now that you've been fully equipped with the most important tool, knowledge, which will allow you to enjoy Mole Whacking Day to its fullest. Safety is key when man-sized mole beasts are involved. As you suit up for a good old-fashioned family day out, I'd like to give you our second story, Alone in the Dark. Racing through the narrow corridors beneath an ancient structure in the guild offices, the guardsmen wasted no time looking through the strange dungeons rumoured to have once been used for torture by the once omnipresent Neverborn in the city. The uses by the guild were not entirely dissimilar, as these rooms had become their primary holding cells before trial, and, though guardsmen of his rank could never confirm the rumour, talk was that deeper levels of the catacombs housed other prisoners, human and otherwise. When asked, the executioner seemed to enjoy ensuring the guard that he certainly kept no one waiting in the basement for long. Rounding a corner, deep beneath the offices of the witch-hunters, he found the governor-general, and stepped quickly beyond two other guardsmen without noticing the urgent expression each offered in warning to wait. He breathlessly exclaimed, Sir, there's a matter that requires your attention. He realized too late that he was interrupting the governor-general's rant against Captain Gideon, bound in thick shackles beyond the reinforced open cell door. The guardsman, regretting his transgression, bowed deeply and waited for the governor's response. The witch-hunters had the wooden doors, 
now dark grey with age, bewitched to withstand any force of brute strength or magical assailant that might attempt to escape. It was a dim, cold place, seemingly designed to eradicate any idea of hope or salvation. The monolithic walls and wrought iron bars communicated an atmosphere of inevitable doom, and the lengthy, winding corridors added a chorus of echoes to the Governor-General's words, as the guardsman silently berated himself for speaking out of turn, though his matter required great urgency, commanded by Lady Justice herself. The Governor-General regarded him as nothing more than an irritant, though he managed a look of disdain toward the young guard before ignoring him completely. The guards slowly retreated as the governor turned back to the former captain. Do not think to speak to me in tones of superiority, captain, he continued. I am no man's subordinate, and you are in no position to make any demand. I fulfilled my end of the contract, Gideon responded calmly. You agreed to... The governor cut him off, barking. Our agreements did not include the death of my only son, you trigger-happy jackass. You never mentioned the relationship he had with the girl. In all of our planning of the murder, he said, accentuating the governor's involvement so that each of the guards clearly heard, you could have prepared me for that. Your son's death is on your head as much as it is mine. The governor stepped into the cell and backhanded Gideon. The blow sent the prisoner staggering back, and though Gideon desperately wished to fight, he could do nothing. Do not think to put this upon me, the governor said between clenched teeth. You'll hang with Jack Dorr in the morning. The governor spoke with a finality that allowed no argument. He beckoned to the guard, and together they left the chamber. Gideon leapt forward as the heavy cell door closed with a resounding boom. My wife needs that payment, General, he bellowed through the food pass in the door. You'll fulfill your end of this, you bastard. The governor held one hand up to the guardsman, about to speak, as he leaned towards the small slot and opened it to look eye to eye with Gideon. What deal do you speak of? he asked. Don't you dare. We had an agreement. I threw away everything for you and your plan. My family needs this. You agreed. The Governor-General smiled. Captain Gideon. Eyewitnesses report that the girl escaped from the balcony. The balcony of the room where you murdered my son. I killed her, Gideon said with certainty. Afterward, I found her. I killed her. And her body? Where did you put it? At your mansion. At your mansion, right in her quarters. The governor smiled sadistically. I'm a fair man. I'll tell you what. You have until morning to prove that. Let me out of here, and I'll be happy to. Hmm. That's the problem, isn't it? The governor said, releasing the thin metal plate of the hole. Gideon shouted, You owe me! I've given everything to you. I trained those men. I helped you claim this city. I am a loyal captain of your guard, my wife. Captain, the governor shouted back. You are no captain of my guard. You are a lowly mercenary, desperate, pathetic. I will, of course, ship your remaining possessions earthside to your young wife. He stood, turning to the guard that interrupted him with calm irritation. What? he demanded. Sir, he began nervously, the lady, uh, that is, uh, Lady Justice, I mean, and the death marshals are calling for a quarantine guard on the breach and the indefinite suspension of all rail travel out of the city. The guard explained the situation anxiously. The governor responded coolly, glancing sidelong at the cell door, 
a smile edging at the corner of his lips. There is no issue in that, he said. A short interruption in supply will artificially increase the market price on Soulstone. But a short interruption is all I'll tolerate. I want this plague quashed before it becomes a nuisance. More loudly so that Gideon was sure to hear, he said. Then the train will not run. I'll see you in hell, Gideon screamed from within as the governor motioned for the other to leave. You hear me? I'll be waiting for you in hell, Gideon's curses echoed after the governor general. The lady reports that this is a disease, not the work of the resurrectionists. Though she requests you deploy witch hunters to join her study of the problem, the young guard continued, visibly shaken by what he had witnessed, knowing the only good course to him was to forget the whole scene. Witch hunters? She suspects something of the arcane? Why would she suspect this? the governor asked. Sir, I apologize, but I do not have her full report as she urged me to bring this news to you with haste. I did overhear her speaking to the judge, though, sir, because of, well, my proximity. I had no intention of listening. Yes, go on. What did you hear? he asked impatiently. That this disease is extremely strong, though they could not understand how it could be passed to a person and then run its course in a matter of minutes rather than days. That's why Justice thought it might be a new resurrectionist plot. I had trouble understanding the judge, though, sir. He mumbles through that scarf he wears. His face is half rotted off, the governor said as a matter of fact, though it startled the guard to hear. What do you think, he said? Maybe there's something new they have to find. The disease is spread through a bite of some animal, that he was certain. And any human in contact with these things... Rats or some insect, he believes, gets infected. Although, the guard hesitated and swallowed uncomfortably, then said, the judge was touching that body and turning it over. He didn't seem too afraid. The governor smiled. The judge is a bit more resilient than some, he said. They ascended the worn brick steps, as the governor said. So why the witch hunters? Well... There have been a number of sightings of a strange man that walks among the sick and the dead. They say he's been seen several times, and he doesn't show signs of the sickness. The death marshals have been deployed to bring him in for questioning, but Lady Justice wonders if this is something different than what we've seen before, like I said. She wonders if there's something more arcane that a witch hunter's expertise might shed some light on. He led the boy to the internal offices of Sonia Crid, head of the witch hunter department and the boy grew visibly more nervous and excited. When his day began, he could not have imagined that he would stand in proximity of the judge and Lady Justice examining a crime scene, report directly to the Governor-General himself, and now he'd stand before the legendary Sonia Crid as well. His eyes were wide as the Governor led him briskly past numerous scholars and deputized hunters as they researched and studied their various assignments. Entering her private study, though, he was disappointed that it remained dark and uninhabited, save the various clutter of artifacts and mystical apparatus on or below large books stacked haphazardly around the room. The Governor-General's fists clenched and he growled, Crud, crud, where do you think you've gone to now? under his breath. Clearly agitated, she was not at her post. He stepped to her desk, slowly turning a large sheet of parchment to examine it. The guard leaned closer to see for himself. Upon her desk were many sheets of paper, all with numerous serpent sketches she had made. He turned to the guard and said, Report to Lady Justice. This is a manhunt. 
and that's something we're good at. Draw up a profile and get it on the streets. Any individual that even remotely matches the description is to be shot on sight. We have a duty to get these trains back on schedule, after all. He continued to look over the manuscripts and drawings on the desk of Madame Crid. Dismissed, he said, as he lifted another sheet of parchment, covered in images of a coiled serpent. The guard made out the words Kythera and Tumors in loose script beneath overlapped drawings of the same snake image. He saw the governor lift one sheet in particular and study it. It was a picture of stars, with one large red star in the center. Crid, he said to himself. What do you think you're doing? For Gideon, there was no plague to fear. He had consigned himself to the gallows at the very moment he saw the governor's son killed. Could even the unassailable Victor Ramos or the infamous Seamus stand against the fury of the governor at the loss of his son? Even if they could, those titans would be hard-pressed. He had risen through the ranks decisively and with honor. Now, now he was nothing. He didn't have the resources or the allies necessary to escape the vengeance of Malifaux's tyrant. Ironic, then, that his life bringing law and order to the inhabitants of Malifaux, to risk his life regularly for others, would end with him on the hanging tree. In these last days, alone in the bowels of Malifaux's most secure dungeon prison, Gideon discovered what isolation combined with the realization of death could do to a man. He could not sleep without the haunting gaze of the governor's dead son and the shrieking of his lover. It was her eyes, though, that dominated his thoughts and awoke him with a jolt. His eyes had met hers, just for a moment before she disappeared over that balcony and into the dim morning light. In her eyes he had seen an unfathomable sadness. Though the two were merely children to him, they were more than young lovers finding a bond of the flesh. The look she conveyed was one of deepest loss that Francis represented her only hope and her only desire. Without him, she lost not just a companion, but her very will died with the slaying of her lover. He considered his own wife Earthside, and the quiet desperation she would have awaiting news of him, her husband, and whether she would ever receive that news. It's true that he did track the girl, rather easily to her quarters behind the general's mansion, she had lunged at him with the long open blades of large garden shears, the only weapon she could find, though he disarmed her easily. She sobbed and struck upon his face and chest, knowing it was futile to attack a man so well seasoned and trained. He never laughed at her, though, never mocked her. He pitied her, for he knew the anguish she felt in the finality of her separation from the man she loved. He felt it too for his family, which he hoped to save. But his hope withered. I will kill you, she spat. She clawed at him and beat upon him. He endured those ineffectual blows. He witnessed her suffering and felt it within himself too, because he had delivered that grief to her. She sobbed amid screams until finally, overcome with grief and rage, the emotions and physical confrontation took hold of her, and she gripped the front of the grey overcoat of Gideon's uniform. I hate you. She sobbed over and over, pitifully crying while holding herself up against the man that had killed the only thing that gave her life any meaning. He pulled her hands from his collar as gently as he could, and she toppled back, falling beside the thatched bedding that was her mattress. Still sobbing, she picked up the garden shears again and held them open before her. 
Each blade was more than two feet long and as sharp as his saber. She looked at the throat of the device where the blades were linked, and he wondered if she would be able to impale herself upon them with enough force to end her life quickly. He doubted it. The dishonor of suicide would be unbearable, he thought. He had brought her to this state, and he needed the contract fulfilled, vile though he now regarded it. You will? She asked him, her chest heaving. You will kill me? He pulled his pistol and cocked it. She never blinked, but stared past the gun barrel at him, into his eyes. He steadied the weapon to end her, cleanly and with no pain. But he could not pull the trigger. Those eyes poured her pain and suffering into him, and all he could see was his own wife sitting there, helplessly sobbing for the loss of the man she loved. He had destroyed a part of her soul. He regarded her for a long moment and contemplated his own life and the man he'd become. He wondered what his wife would say of him as he was now, though she was more desperate every day, too. Do it, she said, suddenly angry that he might not go through with it. She needed the release of death. She welcomed it. Please, please do this. End what you've begun. She could no longer tolerate living. I cannot, he said. I'm sorry. She wailed in agony, hate, and desperation. She begged him to kill her. I'm sorry, he said again, turning to leave her. If it means anything, he said over his shoulder, you know I'm a dead man too. He left his pistol, loaded and cocked at the ready next to the entryway of her small room. She collapsed in anguish, her cries following after him. He was certain that though he could not end her life, she surely would. With his gun, it would be painless. What chilled him that day, facing that young girl, was the finality of her judging eyes. Rather than resolve herself to despair, for herself and the lamentation of the loss of her love, she looked upon him with unbridled loathing that he had never seen in one so young and full of grief. It was the cold certainty that the girl he found on the governor's grounds would be the one to end him. In his cell, here, with the promise of the executioner's noose in the morning, he was still so certain that she would be the one to somehow claim his life. Far below ground, and with no torch or lamp to light the cell, Gideon contemplated his coming fate. The darkness did not comfort him, did not inspire him to sleep. Instead, his body was possessed of a great anxiety that kept his mind and his blood racing. His mind began to form shapes in the darkness, distant and indistinct. They were two orbs, side by side, and they looked down at him from overhead. You've come for me, Gideon said, with little more than a whisper. Gideon knew these faintly glowing shapes were the almond eyes of that girl. They possessed that same sadness, that same detached certainty. He had seen these judging eyes a hundred times since leaving her. As he stared up at the glowing orbs, a ghostly apparition formed around him, slowly coalescing in a gossamer parody of Karai's body. They were eyes, but the body they belonged to was twisted with grief and madness. He knew what he saw behind her eyes. He saw a spirit capable of the greatest depths of hate and malice he had never before imagined. 
It sprung from the great desperation of her unholy thirst for vengeance. He said to the shadow, You killed yourself, then. You killed yourself with my gun, Korayan Koku? The shadow spirit did not respond. You couldn't tell if it even understood him. The dim light of those eyes swelled. The ruddy glow extending to illuminate the interior of Gideon's cell, dispelling the darkness that had enveloped him. That light did not reveal cold stone walls or thick iron bars, but instead a chamber composed of visceral gore. The mortar between the bricks of the walls was slick with blood that flowed as if from deep lacerations of the flesh, and the bars high on the walls no longer absorbed the light with their dark metal surface, but were the wet pink entrails of a man stretched toward, quivering slightly as if still alive. The chamber throbbed with a slow, rhythmic pulse, as if it was some sort of creature sustaining a monstrous beating heart. Most horrifying was the chamber's floor, filled with a mass of butchered bodies still writhing, refusing to accept their loss of life. Dismembered arms grasped blindly at the stiflingly humid air, while severed legs kicked weakly at the organs, twitching and quivering in the pile. A dismembered head, with sinewy muscle dangling from the angular cut through the neck, sat atop the rest, its lips moving in slight gestures of speech, or perhaps gasping for the breath that she once needed in life. Its vacant eyes rolled slowly down from within her skull to stare at him unblinkingly. Gideon shrieked in maddened horror at the carnal images revealed to him, and clawed at the fleshy walls in a desperate attempt to escape. Though the light from the apparition was dim, the heat within the cell quickly overwhelmed him, soaking his clothes with sweat. Deep in the bowels of the witch-hunter's dungeon, no guard answered his desperate cries. No salvation came. There was no answer to his pleas for mercy. The spirit hovered before him, smiling innocently. A faint hint of arms stretched toward him, indistinct and transparent. Like dust in sunlight, they reached out and touched his face, chilling him. As it did, he saw Karai's thoughts and her emotions as they overwhelmed his own. It began tearing at his flesh in slow, deep lacerations. He could hardly tell, though, as the emotional pain of Karai far surpassed the physical agony it inflicted. Still smiling innocently, as if it held no malice toward him, it leaned closer to kiss him on his forehead with shadowy lips. Words formed in his mind as if he were speaking to himself. But it was her, the Akirio he suddenly knew. Your sin against me has earned you pain unending, it said. The pain of the flesh is only the beginning of your suffering. Gideon summoned the last of his self-control and courage. It wasn't mere loan, he said around the pain, and the spirit paused. Gideon said only, the governor-general, before its ethereal claw reached out and took hold of his body tearing him away from the wall. It picked him up and turned him, forcing him to confront that gaze again. The spirit stared him down, those eyes piercing him to the very core of his soul. The ghost then tossed him to the floor, blood-slick hands grasping at his body, jealously capturing him, eager for him to join the pit of their torment. It hung over him for a moment before descending to enact its final vengeance. In the time that the witch-hunters had claimed the structure, none had ever escaped its prison. Even with the powerful practitioners who had been jailed there, and the terrible magic they wielded, 
none had ever defeated its iron bars or thick brick walls though gideon's howling cries of agony sounded for hours throughout the night it wasn't until morning when the hangman came for him that his body was found there was no sign of his murderer's entrance or departure only evidence of the deed itself gideon's body was in a gruesome state the bench in his cell had been broken into splinters and those splinters used to pin back the layers of his vivisected body. Gideon's mouth was frozen wide open, forever screaming, and now in silence. His frozen eyes, too, spoke of fear and pain, and a longing for the anguish to end. Upon the breadth of his forehead, carved into his flesh, was a Three Kingdoms kanji symbol. After his retching stomach stilled, the hangman stumbled from the chamber to fetch the officers of the guild. I hope you enjoyed our tales this week. We'll be back next time with more of the same. Stay tuned next for even more More Whacking Day content, including a biography of the great Malifaux explorer Desmond Mulvat, the man who started it all. We salute you, Desmonds. Whilst you're having a rollicking day today, stay safe out there, Malifaux. When man-sized mole people are involved, bad things happen.